Hello and welcome to the El Monitor podcast, reading the Middle East with Gilles Kepel, where each month we take a deep dive with authors and thought leaders who are shaping the way we think about this complex and dynamic region. I'm your host, Gilles Kepel, and today we are recording from the library of Institut du Monde Arabe, the Institute of the Arab World in Paris, which has in display one of the biggest collections of uh, modern Arab literature in, in Europe. Today, I have the great pleasure and honor to uh, host a very, very special guest, Mr. Orhan Pamuk, recipient of the Nobel Prize for Literature on the occasion of the publication of his latest novel, Veba Geceleri in Turkish, The Knights of the Plague, which just came out in Turkish, uh, in French, and is now out in English. Welcome, Orhan Pamuk. Very pleased to be here. Merhaba, Orhan Bey. Yes. So, dear Orhan Pamuk, your latest novel, The Knights of the Plague, Veba Geceleri in Turkish, is set in the fictional island of Mingeria located somewhere off roads in the Eastern Mediterranean in the very beginning of the 20th century. Sultan Abdul Hamid reigns in Istanbul and he sends on a diplomatic mission to China the newlywed daughter of his deposed brother together with her husband. He's a European educated medical doctor and an epidemiologist. As their vessel makes a stopover in Alexandria, the doctor and his wife are sent back to Mingaria, where the first symptoms of plague are being perceived, in order to take the necessary prophylactic measures to put it to a halt. Through the prism of the disease and its overarching effects, you depict an extraordinary moment during the twilight of the Ottoman Empire, when the new and the old worlds collided, where the coexistence of the Muslim Turks and Orthodox Greeks was ruined by exacerbated nationalism until self-styled local leaders proclaimed independence, a bloody and paroxysmal caricature of chauvinistic regimes that have plagued, so to speak, the region since then. Before we get deeper into that extraordinary book and related to your previous work, one question burns every leader's li lips. You started writing the novel in 2016, four years before the advent of the COVID-19 pandemic. But your fictional Mingaria 1901 plague strikes back for us as a metaphor of present-day COVID, if only because both have exacerbated intense social, cultural and international tensions, tipping the global world order as it was known then and also as it is perceived nowadays. In this regard, I would like to you to elaborate for us on this following quotation from the Goncourt brothers who created in the year 1902, while your fiction was actually unfolding, 
This famous French literary prize that bears their name, the Goncourt Prize, history is a novel that occurred. A novel is history that might have been. So they wrote. Where does Webagajeleri fit into that perspective? First of all, let me salute Concord brothers who were really the great diarists. Uh, and we can have uh, the uh, texture of daily life of literary salons of Paris through them. So I nod to them first. Then I also, uh, my most popular question I've been asked, so you were writing this novel, Mr. Pamuk, for the last four years suddenly. Um, the um, coronavirus epidemic and pandemic started. Um, a call, uh, said, who would read your plague book? It's a passé, it's past. Then suddenly they begin calling me, you're lucky. Well, people may think that I wrote the novel after epidemic that I didn't want them to think. So I wrote a long essay published in New York Times and Liberation and all over the world. Then my publishers begin calling me and sending me emails, Orhan, please finish your novel. Everyone was in lockdown. So I intensely worked and did not change much uh, in the sense that, you know, I don't wanna, want to refer to what's happening today, but it's inevitable that I have seen, I've, I've read so many books, PhDs on the subject of organization and imposition of quarantine. Whenever there is a pandemic, first they deny, then there is gossip, then there is either anarchy or chaos, or a strong government comes and they detest the government, but actually that strong government finishes and controls the pandemic, then there are uprisings. So I thought, wow, this is such a social novel. Actually, I begin to think about 40 years ago, a plague novel for metaphysical reasons, death, individuality, uh, of course, related to the fact that uh, they refer to Muslims as fatalistic. They don't take it seriously. They consider plague or any pandemic as a sort of a punishment for from God because of their sins. For 20 years, I was my mind was busy about that. That also passed. Later, I discovered the third pandemic, which started in the last decade of the 19th century. And, and this was the time of decline of empires and Ottoman Empire. And I decided to set my novel there partly because there, uh, the uh, dominant uh, pandemic in 19th century was cholera rather than plague. Uh, so there were cholera up, uh, uh, quarantine uprisings in Poland, in Russia. And I thought this, uh, this time I want to write Tolstoyan social novel with the pretext of plague. And, uh, an isolated place in isolation. Daniel Defoe discovered in Robinson Crusoe, uh, humanity, history moves fast, and you can see the dramatical movement. Actually, what French people had experienced in 200 years, my characters, my, uh, my Mingar Island experiences in 20 months. And, you know, following up on that, uh, it so happened that uh, during the early summer of 2020, I was tasked here in France to investigate how and why in some quote-unquote Muslim areas in the outskirts of Paris, there was so much resistance to state sanitary measures, to quarantines, etc., against COVID-19. 
So with my team, we observed that the number of Salafi imams explained to their flock that just you said, what you said, that either the virus was sent by Allah to punish sinners and all that medication was useless and that prayer and congregation and under the auspices of those very imams was the only path to salvation on earth and in the hereafter. Though many of the congregants were young, they were French-born, they were educated in our secular schools. So I was stuck when I read your book and I noticed that some sheikhs or dervish monasteries in the Muslim quarters of the Mingaria held exactly the same kind of sermons <laughs> that like the ones I heard in the French banlieues and they translated likewise into power politics. Would you say that history repeats itself or is it that in spite of many of the hopes that of that very 20th century that opens with your novel, which takes place, starts in 1900, we're back to some underground basics that go much deeper than many idealistic believe, leaders and ideologues had thought. Believe me, Gilles, I don't have a straight-cut answer for that. For so many years, for 20 years, when I decided to base my um, plague novel about this subject of Muslims being oriental, uh, being fatalists, kaderji, uh, they don't take measures, they don't believe. It is uh, the plague or the bacteria or virus comes from God. There is some truth to that, but there is also something that I want to argue against uh, putting this, essentializing this attitude it is inherent in Islam. I don't think it's Islam, but it's more education and local politics. Once there is such a social event and government is doing things that they did not do before, whatever the group, of course, Islam, Islami Jamaatler, Islami Islamic groups would find this as an excuse to assert their political power, but they may not believe in it. They may not be kaderji, they may not be fatalist, but it's a good opportunity to take grab some power and say to the government, hey, I'm not listening to you. It's not important what I privately think. You know, in the novel, I have a little sheikh who says don't believe it comes from, but he takes measures himself very privately. So it's very complicated matter, and once Muslims feel they are oppressed, they took every opportunity to fight back and not to listen to the um, government's orders or whatever. So, yes, there is truth in that, that Muslims, compared to Western civilization, 16th century, 17th century, all the travelers wrote, whenever there's plague in Istanbul, they said, oh, they don't take measures. And the Christians went to the Prince's Islands mm -hmm. and Muslims stayed. And there are narratives. I have friends who wrote books about historic uh, history of plagues in um, Muslim countries. They, I, I've read um, texts where the guy is such a great, good guy and wants to only to follow his religion and forget about religion, wants to be nice, running from you know, funeral to funeral, crying and eating and probably spreading the sickness around. But look at his 
he's also a memoirist like Conquer Brothers. Mm. And look at this uh, text. He, he is not aware of anything. And then you think it's education, that, uh, um, knowing that this is contagious. Then, well, then you say, well, well how come the Westerners know? How, aren't they, um, so it's very problematical. I don't have single answers. And once the American novelist F. Scott Fitzgerald said, you have, if you have contradictory ideas strong in your head, you don't have answers for, it's a good start for a novel. Absolutely. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Hagedorn, and I'm the State Department correspondent at El Monitor. And I'm Joe Snell, I'm El Monitor's video editor. Let's admit it, this past year has been difficult to stay on top of the news and sift through what's accurate and what's misleading. Let Al Monitor help you. If you like this podcast and care about the Middle East and North Africa, you should consider listening to Al Monitor's other audio series on the Middle East with Andrew Parasalidi and Amber Zaman, and on Israel with Ben Caspi. You can subscribe to these series on your favorite podcast platforms. And through a host of free daily and weekly newsletters, we offer a range of perspectives with the highest journalistic standards. You can subscribe to these newsletters at almonitor.com. As an award-winning media service headquartered in Washington, D.C., Al Monitor has a network of over 160 contributors around the world. So if you haven't done so already, be sure to visit almonitor.com, where you can find all of these newsletters and podcasts, along with first-class reporting and analysis. So let's get into the book now more deeply. When uh, a book which I liked immensely, I have to say, uh, if only because uh, we get back deep into the history of the region, and uh, you know we've lived all over the last decades with this those uh, views that uh, you know Orientalists painted things uh, like they should not have painted them and the like. And I, I found that your book was was a great antidote to an ideological view at the history of the region. You know and using uh, sources uh, from the ground, from the local people, and it paints a great picture. So it's not only a great book of fiction, I think it's also a, a book for thoughts. But let's go back to your island of Mingaria. I hear that some people take it seriously, and uh, one, la it. one lady here said uh, to you, oh, so where is this island? Because I would like to go there on holiday. <laughs> so it's great because fiction uh, becomes truth. So uh, when the island of Mingaria becomes independent in the course of the novel after the plague and whatever, I won't tell the story because I want people to read your book, uh, as a consequence of the ineptitude of the Ottoman system and uh, its bureaucracy to cope with the challenge of the plague, it all starts up in earnest, this independence issue. But soon, if not, soon enough, this island of utopia, because utopia was an island, turns into dystopia, into a nightmare. The I very slogans that carried freedom, identity, rationality, become the sheer justification of authoritarianism, dictatorship, political murders, and they become null and void. I noticed that uh, after the publication of the, of the novel, you were sued by some ultranationalists in Turkey for ridiculing the Turkish flag and insulting Ataturk because they thought there was a resemblance because Major Kamil, who is the autocrat in the book, the Tath leader, and Kemal Ataturk. Though 
in the afterword by the fictional narrator, who's supposedly the great-granddaughter of the Ottoman princess, who's your main character, she reiterates the old longing for freedom that's, you know, at the start of the independence, as if, in spite of the betrayal of such ideals, those ideals still retain their validity for today. When the narratives of political Islam has become the new speech of the powers that be. Okay. Something uh, in, you, in a way, you, you mentioned in your novel Snow also, okay. to some extent. Right? Um, first, uh, uh, um, look at all the so-called post-colonial nations and small nations in Middle East and in Africa, in, in, in Asia, and more or less the promise of liberation and uh, that is attached to independence of, from the empire. Um, is based on nationalism. Um, they, uh, this also comes along with the king, the Shah Padishah is dead, so the shadow of God is not there anymore. So you have to invent a new myth, a secular myth. My novel is about that. Whether the post-colonial independent nations kept their promise of freedom or free open society, let's put Karl Popper's words, is problematical. I don't think they did. Turkey is no different. But in the end, I did not, ridic I did not intend to ridicule Turkish, uh, in the, uh, Turkish story of Turkish Republic, neither Kemal Atatürk. In a way, I wrote a sort of representative story of all in small nations after the fall of big empires, their problems, their political problems. Uh, and of course, um, my intention to us to demystify the secular um, myths, legends that are invented after the a king or the padishah or a shah or the kaiser vanishes you need them but i'm doing but you also need a novelist to show how fragile how humane how ironical all these myths that teach you at high school and all the people who had read believed very highly in what they have read in high school texts in turkey some of them were upset in the end they wrote so many complaint letters to public prosecutor who invited me to his office you know there is this there is pressure on me implying so I am investigating you, what do you say? And I said, Mr. Prosecutor, which page? And there was, <laughs> even in letters of inform, informing letters, there was no page number. In fact, I wrote more an allegory of national identity or what happens when God's um, system, God's shadow disappears, where do we find meaning in life? In the end, you have to find a motivation to send people to do their military service and shoot each other. <laughs> they used to kill each other for the Padishah, for the shadow of God. So now they kill each other or they repress each other with for the flag, for the nation. That is the new sacred thing. It's my ironical way of pointing that out. So in, I must confess my novel this time has maybe, like my other novels, has educative uh, uh, teaching stand, so a teaching attitude about history of the nations, secular nations, so forth and so on.
But it is nevertheless based on what Umberto Eco called the fictional pact, you know, that he mentioned yes. after uh, Rajdi's novel was criticized, vilified and the like, he made this remark that, you know, readers who attacked uh, the book for blasphemy did not mention the page, just, just the statue. Uh, yes, yes. Now, I would like to put uh, Weber Gejeleri uh, in perspective with some of your other books, with your more mm -hmm. than the 20 books that you have published. Would it be fair to say that while your novels My Name is Red, uh, published in 1998, uh, 98, as well as Istanbul, uh, from two, 2002, or The Museum of Innocence, 2008, carried the nostalgia of a history that might have been, to quote the Goncourt brothers, this last book is far more concerned with the actual present days issues in Turkey and its neighboring states due to the adverse sequels of the history that was. Okay, I've been asked so many times, both by the Turkish media and press and international press, Sir, is so-and-so Kemal Atatürk or Sami Pasha is Tayyip Erdogan? Uh, is your novel allegorical? And my uh, standard answer is, even if my novel were uh, allegorical and symbolical, would I be telling you that? that uh, then it would be foolish to write the novel. Then I would do the, say that in an interview, yes, a novelist does so many things simultaneously, and that what lends the art of the novel its complexity and richness. Yes, there is an allegorical side to my novel, while on the other hand, let's take another plague novel, Albert Camus. He is not realistic about imposition of quarantine. Also, I proudly say that I research, and my novel is pays attention to problems of, you know, our problems today are the same. How do we impose quarantine? People demand simultaneously two things. This is what I've learned writing this novel five years, read, reading about plague and pandemies. Humanity wants two things simultaneously. They first say, hey, government, you probably bought this pandemic, um, collaborating with our enemies. Stop it. It's your job to stop it. I am, my, my sister died, other people are dying, I'm scared, stop it, government. Then the same people say, hey, government, don't touch my business, don't mm. touch my liberties, don't touch what I do. And, and again, they say, stop it. Okay. So um, it's impossible to find one single source of evil in all this complex thing. Writing a novel, I'm not that kind of now a historical novelist that's pointing out the victims, the good people, bad people. In fact, I believe in Tolstoy, who says, if a character is too bad, make him a bit good. If a character is too good, make him a bit bad. I want to perhaps draw a huge panoramic picture of decline of Ottoman Empire. Perhaps one part of my mind was saying to my readers that, yes, there is Ottomanism in Turkey, Erdogan and his party putting on Ottoman Empire and its details and culture on a pedestal. Yes, I too like Ottoman Empire, but don't forget, 
uh, empires decline. Empires produce people like Sami Pasha, who's whipping everyone, putting everyone in yeah. prison. So that's, in a way, my novel is both about the psychology of uh, any pandemic, how one feels alone, how, uh, as if the old myths, the, the God is not there, everyone is dying pointlessly, and also the, the details of daily life followed by daily objects that be also, as in all of my novels, paying attention to beauties of life too. That's why I choose an Eastern Mediterranean island because I like Greek islands, Turkish Mediterranean islands, I've been there. I like small islands. There is also heartfelt personal color in the book. Well, this is precisely where I wanted to, you to come because after completing such an in-depth and wide-ranging historical novel, which as I said earlier, I found to be an extraordinarily illumin illuminating tour de force that drives, that dives deep back into the past so as to uproot and interpret the vagaries of today and tomorrow, I understood from some of your previous interviews that you were now refocusing on the self and exploring in the book you are presently writing how the, the 2006 Nobel Prize winner for literature would have liked actually to be a painter, a craft that could only develop in the Muslim lands thanks to the cultural blend with, blend with Europe. Could you let us know how and why you managed to navigate the gap between your intimacy and the big picture in your fictional work? I believe that the art of the novel works best if the writer, he or she, writes in such a manner that the reader thinks it is, he, it's not autobiographical, it's objective, he's writing from outside, uh, or sometimes the reader thinks that he's only talking about himself. Uh, in fact, when the writer writes, uh, talks about himself, the best way the reader thinks he's talking about others, and when he talks about others, everyone thinks that if he writes well, he is writing autobiographically. This is about the way of telling. Then there is also the mood. I also believe that, um, that there are writers like Kafka, for example. For, for them, literature is self-expression. I, yes, I also want to like, write like Kafka, forgetting anything social, social details, just an allegory, very humane, heartfelt self-expression. Then I also want to write like Tolstoy, a huge panoramic picture, every single detail accurately done and very representative. I am this kind of ambitious novelist. There are chapters that I write in the mood of Kafka, more self-expression, and there are chapters or books that I write in the mood of Tolstoy, but using different techniques from Kafka and Tolstoy. Now my next novel would be the story of an failed Turkish artist because I consider myself like that. I wanted to be a painter and it is accepted by my family. That's why I studied like Le Corbusier architecture, both to be a painter and an architect. 
it didn't work out. But now I want to write my would have been story through the eyes of a fa uh, one single person. But I, I should say, I know that you're not worried. Don't worry. It will be, in the end, Tolstoyan. I will write the Kafkaesque single um, my, in my interior voice would be balanced by the big picture. For me, writing a novel is identifying with your characters, but then taking a distance like an editor, then putting it in a frame which will lend the whole thing, the whole picture, a de deeper, a depth that you cannot calculate at the beginning. So in order to encourage you to go back to this architectural ambition, we invited you, uh, not in the Le Corbusier building, but in this Jean Nouvel architecture of, uh, of the Institut du Monde Arabe. Actually, last month, Jean Nouvel was sitting in this chair where you're seeting. Yes, I know about that. And uh, so we, I, but I had not anticipated that we would play a role in your future career <laughs> or in the fiction of your future career, in the fictional. So, dear, dearest Orhan Pamuk, thank you very much. Chok for joining us today on Reading the Middle East and thanks to you all for listening. I will be back in a few weeks with another one of the top authors and thought leaders in the Middle East. Thank you. Thank you. I, Thank Shamnar. you. Shamnar. I, I also enjoyed doing this. Thank you. And Gule Gule. Bye bye. <laughs> if you have not done so already, Please sign up for Reading the Middle East and monitor other podcasts on the Middle East with Andrew Parasiliti and Amberin Zaman and on Israel with Ben Kaspit on your favorite podcast platform.